Good morning, diners and travelers and imbibers. Um, you're listening to On the Menu with Anne and Peter Haig. And uh, we're going to start out with a series of, um, of lustrous, I would say. Lustrous. <laughs> I guess I mean illustrious. Illustrious. Yeah. Um, guests for today's show, and we'll take them in order. First off, um, I am endlessly fascinated with the process of fermentation and bread making. And here's somebody who will give you the inside dope on the whole situation, Daniel Leader. His book is called Living Bread, and that should convey the whole concept to you. Uh, I get a lot of cookbooks, and I must say that I... I'm not easily impressed, but I'm blown away by Daniel Leader's latest book called Living Bread, uh, Tradition and Innovation in Artisan Bread Making. And I, I'm so overwhelmed, I'm not even sure where to start. Um, it's probably what you'd expect from somebody who is a, um, a, a philosophy degreed person, um, a graduate of the Culinary Institute of America, uh, and in the bread business for 40 years. <laughs> but it's still a mind-blowing experience to look at this book. Uh, Daniel, how long did it take you, aside from the 40 years of preparation, to read, to do this book? I think it was a, it was a four-year process from beginning to end. Okay. And tell our listeners, I mean, I know, but tell our listeners how you came from a philosopher to a, a, a chef, um, high-end restaurant chef, uh, to a passionate and dedicated bread baker. Well, um, when I was in college, um, I needed to make money, and I got a job in the in the dish room at the uh, University of Wisconsin, and this dish room was like, there were like six restaurants in this the the uh, the student union, and you know it was a hard job, and I was and I'm a hard worker, and I think that the kitchen manager saw that I was a really hard worker, and I quickly got promoted to a breakfast cook, uh-huh. and and uh, after I was cooking breakfast for a while, they said to me, you know, you, you're you're pretty good at this, you should consider uh, what are you studying? And I said philosophy. They said, well, maybe you should maybe maybe you should consider um, going to cooking school, and. Um, I applied to the Ecole Atelier in Lausanne, Switzerland, but I didn't speak French. And so then I applied to the culinary, and I ended up going to the Culinary Institute of America in, in Hyde Park shortly after they had moved the campus from New Haven, Connecticut uh, to Hyde Park. I was one of the first classes. So and it was not a very developed program, curriculum, and also facility, right? No, not at all. I mean, it was kind of like um, in those days. I mean, they had a curriculum for sure, but ev- all the curric- all the classes were basically designed by the individual class instructor. So, although there might have been sort of like guidelines, you had to do this in every class. You know, the, most of the most of the chefs were old world uh, European chefs, and so you're not going to tell a French chef to cook Spanish food and a German chef to speak to cook French food and vice versa. So it ended up being very much a reflection of the chef's background and personalities. And the baking program was really short, just two weeks. And there was a Eastern European uh, baker that I was quite fond of, and he showed me how to make uh, sourdough rye bread. And then after graduating from the school, I ended up working in um, three of the 
old world French restaurants in New York. When I say old time, I mean, I was always the only American in the kitchen, and I was expected to understand the commands in French, and I was, I was expected to participate as well as I could, although, although everybody did speak English. Um, once they were in the kitchen environment, you know, uh, I, I remember the first day I was working at Le Vaudor, and all of a sudden, you know, we get ready, and we've the mise en place is done, and all of a sudden the waiters start running in with these little pieces of paper, and there was this wooden board with, like, nails on it. And the waiters would run in and say, Don't on, si couvert, un poulet, un omelette, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and, I, and, and I was expected to remember what, what was ordered, and uh, it, was, it was very much a trial by fire. Uh, let me jump to something here is um, to just clarify who is this what is the intended audience for this book oh well I, I think that people uh, right now are very passionate about fermented foods uh, oh, yeah. beer, wine vinegar, cheese making yogurt making you name it I mean there is there, is, there are uh, chat groups on Facebook for all types of fermented foods. So number one, the audience is people who want to understand fermented foods, and which sourdough is a big part of it. Uh, another audience is just people who love good bread, even in spite of the amount of, of, of publicity that we're getting today on gluten-free diets and, and, all, and that world. There's a huge audience that want to understand about real bread, uh, the third audience are just food lovers. I mean, people who love good, simple foods. Um, and I think um, I think there's a younger generation of people. I'm fascinated by the Instagram world. All these young people, you know, in their 20s, uh, late teens, cooking, baking, you know, fermenting. It, there's a, there's a there's a there's a there's an audience of passionate young people who want to understand food. Right. Now, I mean, you, you mentioned Instagram. I think I'd be, uh, uh, I, I have to mention that one thing about this book that is spectacular, the photography is stunning. Tell us about your photographer and, okay. and how. Uh, it's actually a great story. Nearly everything that has happened in my life is by coincidence, okay? Like I meet someone and I meet somebody else. So I had this friend in Paris who wrote this book uh, called the, uh, uh, Dictionnaire Universel du Pain, mm-hmm. and and uh, the Universal Dictionary of, of Bread. Right, yeah. And I'm in Paris with Jean Philippe, and he says, "Dan, I really want you to meet this photographer. He wants to do this book on on bread baking, and he's, he loves good bread." And so I meet this. The, I meet Jorg Lehmann, and he tells me about his photography. He tells me about his style. He showed me some of his photographs. I was completely flipped out. Like completely flipped out. Oh, you and were, we were they were fabulous. Absolutely yeah. fabulous. And so we're we're sitting at a restaurant called Boissonnier on Rue de Seine in Paris. Uh, and I look at him, and he looks at me, and I said, "York, let's make a deal right here." <laughs> and he goes, and he says, "He goes, man, you are an American because he says because nobody <laughs> no, nobody in Paris would say, okay, let's make a deal right now." So we shook hands and we said, "We're going to do this book," but I hadn't written the proposal yet. <laughs> so I had to I had to write the proposal. I had to sell the proposal. You know, so he was like he was kept calling me and saying, "Are we ready? Are we ready?" I said, "No, no, I haven't <laughs> sold it yet." But 
and then we traveled all over Europe together. And you can you can feel you can feel the the dedication to his work and the photos. And he catches an emotional element in bread that is just unique. I mean, he's a he's a special human being. Well, I mean, I, I'm just totally impressed by it. Um, this this whole thing about traveling all over Europe gives us a certain context also for your book because um, you outline all the influences that came, and a lot of them were almost coincidental to what else you were doing, and you're a very good networker as well. Um, but you you expanded all over, well, not only geographically, but also historically um, into the whole area of bread baking, traditions, you've graphed. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, to me, if you don't, I, I, I just, there's something, if I want to learn something, I want to learn about the tradition. But, you know, it was really interesting, you know, traveling in Sicily and visiting um, an agronomist who's researching all, many of the traditional grano, grano antico that were grown in Sicily that, that stopped when Mussolini was, was, was dictator. You know, he, he transformed the agricultural economy Amongst many other things, he was really the, 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 the motivation for a lot of the modern uh, wheat breeds because Italy was importing so much grain and they, they couldn't feed the country. And so he said, you know, we have to feed the country. So um, a lot of these older varieties of, of grain here are in silos or they're hidden away. And this, uh, this uh, guy who runs this, his name is Giuseppe De Carlo, who runs the uh, uh, the uh, Agronom- Agronomy Institute for the Uni- University of Palermo, mm-hmm. and he's t- he's testing every year thousands of varieties of old wheat, and they have this seed library. It's like going in a bank vault. You have you have to go in a, a door with a special code, and then it's air temperature, and then there's another door with a special code. And in this room, he has thousands of varieties of of, of seeds that if they want to do a test plot of a particular type of grain or legume, this is where they store all that information. So it's like the anyway, Peru, the potatoes. Exactly, yeah. exactly. But, 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 but it's so interesting because what he does is he, he, he'll, he'll do a plot, say, you know, three meters by three meters. And then he'll, he'll pull the seeds from that plot and the right. next year, the, the next, the next year they'll do 30 meters by 30 meters. And then the third year, it takes them five years to collect enough seed. And then he'll find a farmer and he'll say, okay, I want you to do 40 hectares of this particular <laughs> type of, of grain. But what's really interesting is because of the small network of, of farmers, millers, and bakers in Sicily, within five years, they can have in a baker's hand enough flour that they could actually have like an heirloom bread. And so you have you have you have these bakers in Sicily who are who are really transforming the bread landscape with flour made from some of these grano antico, and it's just fascinating. And it really the the breads really taste different. They look different. They smell different. So it, it's a bit of a revolution that people don't really know about. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I'm, I don't know how many times I've been in Sicily, and I never noticed anything about the the grains, <laughs> nothing. So oh, no, that, it, now it, I know it, to look. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's there's a, there's a network of a half a dozen millers 
who are are really um, transforming uh, the the bread language there. Now, a lot of your book is uh, is built around specific individuals and their contributions and what you learned from them. Uh, mention some of these people. Well, um, for example, um, uh, there's a baker in Paris named uh, Rudolf Radaman, and he's a young baker, and uh, he's both a very much a traditional baker, and he's also an entrepreneur. And he has about 15 locations in Paris. And Is he your bakery. minimalist baker? I, yeah, he's a wonderful baker, but he's he's a real businessman. He's not just uh, 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 he's not just like like a, a businessman who's using bread as a medium. He really loves good bread, and he wants to have a great business. And he's he's doing a whole variety of, of great breads. There's a baker um, northwest of of Munich named Ernst Eibel, and he's like yes. they call they call they call him. Uh, the the free baker in Germany because he bakes traditional breads in a very free style and and literally he's in this tiny village an hour and a half northeast of Munich and there's bread there's lines of bread people in bread in line for bread you know thirty forty fifty people all day Friday Saturday and Sunday when he bakes uh, there's a baker I write about uh, up near Hamburg his name is Johann Gels. And uh, they, call, they, 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 they call him the rebel in the box tube because he, he breaks all these baking rules and he's got this crazy personality. Um, so he's, he's very well known in Germany as the rebel in the box tube. Uh, there's a woman in, in Austria, Denise Pelsauer, and Denise took over her grandfather's bakery and has transformed it into a biodynamic uh, bakery. So I have about 19 bakers that I... That I focus on in the book. And and interesting them, characters, all of them. I mean, every one, every one of them, every one of them, you could tell stories about for hours. Now, what, now, what about the, the, the UK and the USA? Well, you know, um, we met a lady. To be, to be to be honest, I am not. I know there's a bread revolution going on in the UK. Yeah, we interviewed that, that sourdough. The woman who has the sourdough bread school. school. There's a sourdough. She's got the sourdough school. Right, um, right. And uh, she's got quite a following. Um, and uh, certainly in the U.S., there, you know, Chad Robertson from Park oh, yeah, right. has very much uh, created. I mean, there's there's all these bakers who are very much in the in the Chad Chad Robertson school of baking. And it's quite interesting to see how how much how what influence he has. And his style is very specific. So it's interesting how many bakers. In the states, are following his model, his his baking model. Well, he just partnered up with um, uh, Chris Bianca, right? I don't know. I I, know. I live I I live live a little bit in my bread alone bubble. So, (laughs) and and I would say my bread alone bubble and my living bread bubble. So, I I I, uh, it's been kind of fun though because my bubble has gotten bigger because uh, my editor and the PR firm at the um, at Penguin. Which is a great publisher, by the way. Yes. Um, um, insisted, Dan. You know, you have to get on social media. You have to do Instagram. So I'm Instagramming, and I'm part of that world now. So the, my bubble's getting bigger. Just wait. Have you ta- tackled TikTok yet? <laughs> no, 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 no. But actually, actually, uh, the the book is released 
tomorrow. So, yeah, yeah, October 1st. So tomorrow is the, is launch day. So it's a, this is, this is, today's a very exciting interview because it's close to the launch and tomorrow is very exciting. Oh, that's for great. Me. Now, we've been to Altamira and I, I, I didn't, I was surprised that it has the specialness in, in your book and tell us about what's, what's special about Altamira. Well, you know, Altamora is one of the oldest wheat-growing and bread-baking uh, regions in Italy. It's west of Bari. It's really the bread basket of Italy. There, I forget how many flour mills, both big and small, are in Altamora. Most, most of the pasta flour in Italy comes from, um, from that region. And it's also a region that's very famous for bread. And there's only two, there's two regions in Italy that have the DOC, uh, the DOC. Um, yeah, and Altamora is one of them. And Did you hear, so, by the way, that there's a plague on um, the olive trees in Puglia? No, I did not know that. Yeah, I forget how huge percentage of lost uh, olive trees. Oh, that's heartbreaking. Some kind of a pest. I don't know why. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah. So, um, so in Altamora, bread bakers can get this DOC, okay? Yeah. And, and uh, DOP, denomination or yeah. producto, okay, DOP. And um, and in order to get that, there are very strict rules about how you can bake your bread. You have to make your bread with a firm levito madre, made from uh, refined semolina flour. Uh-huh. You have to, you have only have the ingredients can only be flour, other, other refined semolina flour, water, salt, and levito madre. Uh, the bread has to be fermented for a certain amount of time. The bread has to be baked in wood fired brick ovens. And the bread has to have a crust that is a certain, um, um, I think it's like five centimeters thick. Really? You know what I mean? It's a really, so the, 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 the the style and and very traditional shapes. There's five shapes that can be part of the DOP. So um, it's it's it, and, and this is they've been baking bread like this. I mean, not for hundreds of years, for thousands of years. Okay, so you know when you go to a, a wood fired bakery in Altamora, you're living history because you know I remember when I was Altamora ten years ago. 15 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, it is unchanged, the style of baking. And there's something so beautiful about it that it doesn't need to change. You don't need innovation because it's so good. So uh, it's one of my favorite places in in um, uh, Italy. Okay, well, again, uh, I, I, you know, I, when we get back, I will have a different perspective as a result oh, yeah. of your and, 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 and this baker, Nunzio, the baker I write about, uh-huh. I mean, he, he looks like a loaf of Altamora bread. I mean, like, so, <laughs> you know, so, so when you look at the bread and you look at Nunzio, you know, and, uh, <laughs> I'm looking at him right now. <laughs> uh, I mean, he looks like a loaf of bread, right? I mean, a, a, a very, a very handsome loaf of bread. Yes. Yeah. Now, I, I have a quick question. I mean, it's, just a, it's, maybe it's a dumb question, but we, when we were in Abruzzo, every, everybody said the best flour for making pasta was grown in Abruzzo. Yeah, they do. Well, I, I have to say to you, I've been many places in Italy, and I can't tell you how many times I have heard you know them tell me, "Oh, the the best 
wine or the best <laughs> olive oil or the best flour. And, and you hear about the best olive oil in nine places. You hear about the yeah. best, you know, you know, so, so I think that people are very dedicated and passionate about their region and what they make. But that's, that's part of the beauty of Italy. Yes. There's, there's, there's plenty of BS in there somewhere. Yeah. Now, you use this term living, um, living bread, and I, the, the title of your book is Living Bread, and I take that um, to mean two different things. One, um, you specify that it's the profession itself uh, is it's living the profession. It's not uh, anything less. And that also you're referring to living bread as we were talking about fermentation, about, I mean, am I right in, in doing this? No, I, I think you hit it right on the head. I okay. mean, I, I, w- I was trying to have multiple meanings. Mm-hmm. But mostly I, I, I wanted it to be, to me, bread is only as good as the people who are living it, whether it's the farmer or the miller or the baker, I mean, it relies on a certain set of skills and tradition to make good bread. And I'm not saying it can't innovate and change, but, you know, without passionate people, you're never going to have good bread. Yeah, I mean, we, we know a, 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 a bread maker, um, and his bread is fabulous. Um, and, yeah, you know, He's so wrapped up in, in this bread that he's never on time for anything, but he must be on his bread because it's perfect. But he lives in a different era altogether. Well, you know, I, I'm the opposite kind of baker because everything we do has to be on time. Mm-hmm. So my my whole life is about scheduling and what time to mix the sourdough and what time to mix the bread and how long does it ferment and when do you put it in the oven so the customers can get their bread on time. And coming to this this ferment stuff, I mean, um, I you have what do you have here? Um, you have simple ferments, you have complex ferments, you have simple um, sourdoughs, you have complex <laughs> sourdoughs. It's like it, it's very scientific and, and technical. Uh, what can you just say briefly? Well, let, 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 let me let me just say this. Yes. Uh, whenever I talk about sourdough, I always start with the same premise. So commercial yeast was invented somewhere around Brewer's Yeast, 1880, 1890. Okay? Okay. In the scope of history, that's not so long ago. Okay? So it's 120 years, maybe, you know, 130 years. Okay. So before that, from the beginning of time when people started making bread, people made bread with sourdough. So if people were making bread with sourdough for at least 2,000 years, it can't be that complicated. So even though I have simple sourdoughs and complex sourdoughs in the book, it has to do more with the layers of sourdough and other, and other fermentation techniques or starters or seed soakers. It's not that sourdough is complicated. Sourdough, The sourdough process infinitely uh, uncomplicated and very straightforward and very simple. We have to remember to feed it. You know, it's it's kind of like it's Wednesday it's at 6 o'clock. It's time to add flour and water to the sourdough. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a lot more weight than work. Well, I, I think you've done an incredibly fine job and... Uh, it, it, it's so interesting. It's, it's almost, it reads almost like a novel. <laughs> 
Well, there's a lot of, a lot of great stories in it. Yeah. I'm writing about a lot of interesting people. I'm writing about lifestyles. I'm writing about history. I'm writing about tradition. So there's a lot into the book. It's, it's way more than a recipe book. Oh, God, yes. Yes. And it's, it's also a philosophy for living, right? Absolutely. Daniel Leader, I, I wish you much success with this book. It's, it would be well-deserved. And I'm happy to have met you, and I have a whole new perspective on places that I've been to and didn't realize the importance or significance at all the levels that you bring to light. Well, it's my pleasure, and thank you so much for uh, inviting me on your show. Thank you. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Welcome back. Um, this next guest, Bernie Herman. Um, the title of his book is A South You Never Ate. And, you know, you may not altogether believe that if you think you know a whole lot about the Southern cuisine. But um, he's talking about a very particular and, and not as well-known area, the eastern shore of Virginia. And I think you'll find absolutely things you have never heard of, let alone eaten before. Bernard L. Herman, who we're going to call Bernie, um, wrote a fascinating book, not his first, called A South You Never Ate. And uh, I thought that I knew Southern cooking, but this is very specific and special. Uh, The subtitle is Savoring Flavors and Stories, from the eastern shore of Virginia. And Bernie, the first thing that grabbed my attention was just inside, as I opened the book, the map of the area you're talking about. I never knew that it was so filled with um, streams and um, creeks and inlets. And it's, it's rather amazing, isn't it? Startling, even. Uh, it certainly is. In fact, uh, when we need to go over and visit somebody, uh, if we went by car, it will take us maybe 12 miles, but if we go by boat, we can do it in a mile. Well, so, I mean, I, I, I'm really curious. I'd like to, to visit. I mean, I know the um, east shore of Maryland. And, and North Carolina. And North Carolina, but... Um, not not Virginia. It's a, it's a, a whole new thing for me. Now this is essential, actually, to your book and the content of your book is the terroir of this particular region. Now, tell us a little bit about that. Well, geographically, it's located uh, between the Atlantic Ocean uh, to the east and the Chesapeake Bay uh, to the west. Where we live, you cannot see the other side of the Chesapeake Bay or the rest of Virginia. Uh, the soils are light and sandy and incredibly productive. Uh, it was one of the wealthiest agricultural areas in the eastern United States right through the 1920s. 
Uh, but since the Great Depression and all the other changes that have occurred, uh, its economy and its agricultural production has evolved, uh, and it has gone from being one of the wealthiest counties to one of the counties with the longest history of persistent poverty in the state of Virginia. And why is that? I mean, I know that there's um, that the agricultural roots have changed. You say they they used to be uh, diverse, and now it's leaning towards monocultures. Uh, certainly, uh, it has a lot to do with agricultural labor, uh, and that extends to working the water. There have been declines in the fish populations. Oh, that's uh, a bad one. Things. Uh, there were oyster diseases that rose up through the uh, late 1960s on into the 1980s. Uh, all of these things seem to conspire just to work against uh, the continuing vitality and foodways of the community, but they still endure. Now, now if, you want to get, if you want to get there, there's a bridge you have to cross, and, and whichever one you take, it's a busy one, right? <laughs> well, if you come down from the north, you would come down uh, through Delaware and Maryland to get to the... Uh, uh, northern part of the eastern shore of Virginia, which is where Chincoteague and Assateague are. Oh, right. so, the, these are places that are familiar to a great many people. Right. If you come from the south, you cross 14 miles of bridge and tunnels to get to the eastern shore. And at the very last, there's a high-rise bridge, and you crest that bridge, and you actually get this really wonderful sense of being at the edge of a continent with the west off uh, going out into the Chesapeake and beyond, and the east, uh, it's open water all the way to North Africa. Don't, don't they have wild horses there somewhere? That's chicken. Uh, they do have the wild horses up um, at Chincoteague and at Fatigue, but people ran livestock on all the barrier islands uh, really right up until the 1930s. And so there were sheep that uh, were grazed in the salt meadows of the islands. Uh, there were cattle, including steer, uh, as well as horses. See, I never understood how that worked that way. Now, don't, don't they have a lot of chickens, too? Yeah. <laughs> well, the chicken business is a little Mr. further Perdue. north uh, to uh, Delaware and Maryland. Uh, right. And there is a chicken farming presence now in the northern of the, most of the two Virginia counties, uh, which is Accomack. But the southernmost county has held that industry at bay. Now, the photos in your book, um, they, they give me a, a sense of place, too. People seem so comfortable in their environment. Uh, yes, it's true, is that it's a place where people really are uh, comfortable in their own skins. It's a place where conversation really matters, uh, where people like to exchange stories and anecdotes. Uh, and really engage the wonder of this place. Uh, for all of its economic issues, it is extraordinarily beautiful. It's one of the few places in the eastern U.S. that you can see the sun rise and set over water without 
seeing land on either oh, side. Oh, that's true. Yes, that's interesting. Yeah. Uh, it sounds just startlingly beautiful, startlingly beautiful. But um, tell us, I mean, it's, I was sort of surprised that there was so much diversity uh, there in the community itself. Why is that? Well, the community has been diverse, um, certainly since the arrival of the Europeans, the first Europeans and Africans in the early uh, 1600s, and before that there were indigenous peoples. Uh, and when those first Europeans arrived, they were not just English folk or folks from the British Isles. They included uh, folks from the Netherlands, from Northern Europe, uh, from parts of present-day uh, Germany. Uh, folks who were African came from the west of Africa um, and reflected multiple practices there. Uh, and then there were the indigenous peoples who had their own food ways that were fully established. Uh, one of my favorite stories occurred in the 1640s when a neighbor goes to see... Um, the workers in the quartering house on the adjacent farm where a deceased boy named Sneer, who was referred to as the Dutch boy Sneer, did dwell with the African, the Spaniard, and the Irishman. And I think about them sitting around the cold ashes of that fire and wondering what language did they speak and what was in the pot in front of them. Yeah, now you, you tie, but first of all, you, this book is, is a collection of, of stories. I mean, it's a cookbook and you do have some, um, some recipes in it, but it's more a history, a cultural history, uh, and it's a series of stories because you equate the food culture with storytelling. Now, how do you do that? Well, I, realized early on that at the end of the day, people generally want two things. They want a really good meal, and they want to hear a great story. And those two things have always been in circulation and in practice in this particular community and in other communities. Uh, and I realized that when I sat down with folks and we talked about foods or we ate together, is there were always stories that went with it, it's as if storytelling is the seasoning that makes a dinner great. It's true. <laughs> Absolutely true. Um, there are lots of, of ingredients that, um, that the, you, your stories focus on, uh, and the readers are going to come to understand a number of terms that I've never heard before. I, I wanted to interject here. I had no idea that they, you would, in that part of the country, grow figs. <laughs> it just seemed like, why? <laughs> but I guess, why is because there, there were people there that loved figs, right? Well, the figs just do really well. They have all, you know, they're not a native cultivar to no. the, uh, North America, they come out of the Levant, yes. um, and uh, they do really, really well in this warm climate uh, with its humidity and its sandy soils. Uh, they require no watering, no fertilizer, wow. no pesticides or herbicides. You just 
fight for the right, the ripe figs with the wasp, June bugs, and birds. Uh, and there's always plenty for everybody, as it turns out. Uh, but folks began to grow different varieties. Um, and so I collect the varieties that have century-long histories and keep them in a grove where people can come and take cuttings uh, and go away and keep those cultivars as part of a living culinary tradition. Oh, you do that, huh? Now, now Bernie, I you, do indeed. Bernie, you, you, you work at UNC Chapel Hill, but do you still live on the eastern shore? Uh, we divide our time between okay. University of North Carolina, where I teach, uh, and uh, the uh, eastern shore of Virginia, which I have to say is where my heart is. Right, and and you also, in addition to, to being um, a, a South what is Southern Foodways expert, you also um, have oyster beds. That's true. Um, <laughs> I began to grow oysters for restoration. Uh, the populations were so decimated, uh, and I remembered from the 1950s when I was a kid, there were oysters everywhere, and all of a sudden in the 1990s. They were gone. Uh, but once you understand that an oyster is a reef animal, like coral, uh-huh. uh, you can begin to figure out the dynamics of reproduction. And so I began to hand-assemble individuals that I found in the wild. And then the commercial growers have been really supportive uh, and supplied me with equipment and with a clean shell. So I've now rebuilt seven oyster reefs which have gone native uh, and so it's part of a process of really giving back to place uh, and to keep all of those flavors and recipes alive and part of a living tradition now you, you said earlier on that one of the one of the problems and this is this is not a problem just of the eastern shore of Virginia and that's disease getting to essentially stamp out the crop uh, I'm sorry, you'll have to sort of run that past no, me again. I said, you said earlier on in that conversation that one of, one of the problems disease. Is, is, is disease affecting the, affecting the oysters. That uh, was true of the whole Chesapeake Bay. I mean, it's true of a lot of other places too. Yeah. Well, what's happened is that uh, the diseases were actually... Uh, transmitted through the ways in which oysters were historically cultivated and harvested, uh, so that it was when you took seed oysters from one area and put them in another, you get the spread of these two naturally occurring pathogens. What happened over time, though, is after the huge die-offs, is the oysters that were genetically resistant continued to live and to grow. The difficulty is their populations were so dispersed that they couldn't reproduce easily. Uh, And folks have now begun to bring back these oysters which have developed a genetic resistance to these two pathogens. They still carry them. If you do the uh, microanalysis, you'll still see those uh, trace pathogens in the oysters, but it no longer uh, kills them. 
And, you know, those two things, you know, they're certainly, they have no impact at all on humans unless you want to eat oysters and you can't find any. <laughs> that's, a yeah, pro- no, this, that's a problem, right? This, uh, the rebuilding of these, um, uh, what do you call them, uh, we, we have that, it's a national program and we have restaurants all over Pittsburgh collecting and cleaning oyster shells and send them to, uh, to, there for the reefs. Yeah, that whole idea is that what really hurt was when the die-offs occurred is you had the loss of what is called substrate or the structure of the reef itself. Um, It got covered with silt or mud and big storm events or just through erosion. Uh, And at the end of the day is that what oysters there were were really struggling to find something to attach themselves to. Mm Mm-hmm. So what you have to do and why people collect shells now and are so careful about recycling shells is that is what an oyster wants to land on. Uh-huh. And so if you begin to create substrate or an environment for them to attach to, uh, they will begin to come back. Now, the, the fishing business has, has been grappling with how, how much to take and how much not to take, right? Well, there are uh, all the limits on catches. Um, the larger issue there is that folks tend to, or policy tends to address these things incrementally so that if there is a downturn in fish populations, whether it's something like tuna or blue crabs or whatever else, um, you tend to see these targeted limits. But it's a much larger ecological and environmental problem. And I think it's going to take a kind of holistic planning that looks at environments as fully integrated as opposed to compartmentalized to begin to really start to uh, reverse and heal uh, some of those uh, losses in population. Talk to us a little bit about hurricanes and global warming and rising sea levels? Well, they're all true. Um, The incidence of hurricanes, uh, certainly intense hurricanes that are making landfall, uh, is well documented in its increase. Uh, What we don't talk about so much are the other types of storms which do as much or greater damage. Uh, Northeaster, for us, will come along and hang out for a few days and really create uh, high tides and erosion. Certainly sea level rise exacerbates erosion. And the other thing that we're looking at in this part of uh, Virginia and across the Chesapeake Bay around Norfolk and Hampton Roads is uh, subsidence. The land is sinking even as the ocean is rising. Yes. You get these more intense storms. And it's a cocktail for a loss of habitat, among other things. Now, you have a a lot about crabs. I think everybody associates crabs with that area. But tell me what mudlarking is. Oh, mudlarking is a, a, a now largely vanished form of work. Um, I've got to tell you sort of a backstory. There was not a, a chapter on crabs in the original manuscript, and it was the editor, my wife, 
and the people who lived there that said, where's this chapter on crabs? And I said, well, there is one. Uh, So why didn't there one? I said, well, William Warner wrote the great book, Beautiful Swimmers. Uh What can I say? In the 70s. In the 70s, he said, well, we don't know what you can say, but figure it out. (laughs) Um, And so that's, I began to think about um, the words for crabs, and then I began to think about the rise of the soft-shell crab industry. Yeah, tell me uh, about crab- that. You said they're peelers. I, did, I thought that they were, that was a stage of development of the crab. Um, there are all sorts of stages along the way. And to simplify it, there are peelers, which are crabs that are just getting ready to shed. Uh-huh. Then there are the shed crabs which have backed out of their shells, their old shells, um, and they're soft in that moment. And then over a period of hours, they become hard again. Um, And the real challenge historically, and historically this really didn't begin on the eastern shore of Virginia until the 1920s or so, was to get peelers. If you're going to ship crabs, you have to have enough to the ship. Well, in the life cycle of a crab, in the wintertime, they go dormant. But when the water's warm, and this is usually around Mother's Day where we are, uh, the crabs begin to come out of their dormancy, and they are really eager to make more crabs. Um, And and so what you will... (laughs) That's my favorite food, by the way, soft-shell crabs, yeah. I, I'm there with you. I have a freezer full to tide me over the oh, winter. Oh, I'm coming to visit. <laughs> <laughs> well, come on. I, uh, I have some good soft-shell crab recipes for you. Yeah. Um, but anyway, it's in that moment um, of where the crab starts to shed or a peeler crab goes soft is that they are able to procreate. Um, you have to think two armored animals attempting <laughs> to uh, presents a certain problem. Um, so there has to be this kind of moment of, uh, shall we say, accessibility. Um, and in that moment, is the, it's in the shedding life, the growing life of the crab. And a she-crab may shed out uh, three, four times uh, um over the course uh, of a summer as they grow uh, fast um, and uh, continue to um, develop. Uh, But what people would do in the spring of the year is they would take lard tins uh, and burlap bags and they would go out into the marshes on both sides, for the Atlantic marshes especially, which are vast. I mean, it is eight miles from high ground out to the barrier islands, and it's filled with tens of thousands of acres of pristine native marsh. In fact, it's a a UN-designated coastal reserve. Um, And people would go out on top of the marsh, and where there are little depressions with water in it, when the tide goes out, the crabs that are getting ready to shed would get down in those holes, uh, where they were protected and predators could not get to them, except uh-huh. for mudlarkers. Uh, yeah. And they would go out and they would pick up the peelers and put them in these lard tins uh, and burlap bags, and they would trudge through these 
marshes. People who did it describe it as just some of the most brutal physical work you can imagine. Walking four miles, for example, through mud that ranged from ankle to knee deep. Yes, yeah. You have to know what you're doing and where you're going. (laughs) Well, that's the other thing is people tend to forget that when they think about people who work on the water, they forget these people are natural historians. These are people who know the movements of the natural world at an intimate level that is far beyond the rest of us. Uh, uh, listeners, if, if you were, if your interest is, is piqued by what we've already talked about, let me tell you, there's more to come. There's, there's the whole story of marsh hens, there's sweet potatoes, oyster pie. Um, I, I, I'm really not sure about this toads, a taste for toads thing at all. Carnivals, um, uh, celebrations of all sorts. And uh, t- the, I like the um, snapper turtle bit, too. That was pretty funny. <laughs> and the, the turtle party was a big event. So it's all in this book. <laughs> it's just you cover so much ground, Bertie, and it's just so interesting. And it makes me want to take a trip. Well, if you take a trip, you will be welcome. This is a place that is incredibly gracious um, and welcoming. It's just hard to get there. Yeah, I know. I'm looking at the, the map. It is indeed. Well, I certainly enjoyed this book, and I'm sure that our listeners will too. Again, it's Bernie Herman, A South You Never Ate. And I hope I get the chance to try some of this. Thanks for talking to us, Bernie. Well, thank you, and the next turtle party is just a few weeks away, so come on over. <laughs> I wish I'd known sooner we're in Europe. <laughs> it's going to be even harder to get there. <laughs> but Okay, thank you. Keep us posted on the next one, then. I surely will, and thank you very much for inviting me. Thank you. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. For our last segment today, finishing up today's uh, podcast, uh, we had a lot of fun with Peter Hunt and with his product, which is um, Indigo Empress 1908 Gin, which is this vibrant color. Um, he's talking to us uh, representing Victoria Distillers, and just listen, I mean, it's uh, it's something that I never expected come, would come out of the bottle, that color, but it did. Peter Hunt, I, I told you a minute ago, the first thing about your Indigo Empress 1908 gin is getting past the vibrant blue color. <laughs> and you said? Yeah, it's, you know, it's something that uh, definitely sometimes takes people by surprise. They uh, they don't necessarily expect when you pour it out of the bottle that it will be blue. Some people think it's the bottle itself. Yeah, I thought it was. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, and it's surprising to some people. They're like, whoa, that. That is blue. Why? And then, but the the great the great thing about that is it's actually an entry into the story of of Empress Jin. And uh, yeah, tell us that you know, story. I, 
Yeah, so we, uh, we've actually been around as a distillery for, um, over a, over a decade. We, uh, we've always been a gin distillery. And we moved into a new location and we reached out to the Empress Hotel, which Are is like Canadian? Are you Canadian? Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, yes, I, I am, I am Canadian. Okay. Uh, Ouch. yeah. And, uh, our, our distillery is in Canada, in Victoria, BC, just north of Seattle. Um, we, uh, and we, we approached the Empress Hotel. We asked them if they wanted to create a, a gin with us and they were excited by the idea. And anyone that's been to Victoria, uh, pretty much knows that the Empress Hotel is famous for their afternoon tea. And so when we set out to create this gin, it was, it was really this afternoon tea experience at the, at this, uh, iconic hotel that, uh, inspired the, the, the gin botanicals. So we, we started selecting botanicals. We actually started with 20 different teas from their, their tea room and we narrowed it down to two. Uh, one of which is the uh, Fairmont Empress Blend Tea, which is the signature tea from their tea room. And the other one is the, the Butterfly Pea Flower, which actually came out of a tea in their tea room called Blue Suede Shoes. <laughs> and, uh, I love it. And we, and we started using it because it has all these, uh, it has so many interesting characteristics. It's got this nice, it gives a nice soft texture to the gin. Uh, it gives a little touch of earthiness, kind of the same way Angelica does in some other gins. Um, and, and then of course it gives this, this vibrant color, which we actually weren't sure about, at, uh, at the beginning either. But, uh, but we, you know, we, we moved forward with it anyway, and it, it, uh, it seems to, you know, people see it on the shelf or they see it at a bar and they're like, whoa, what is that? And they try it and they're like, oh, well, actually it tastes really good too. And, you know, we set out to make a great, a great gin, not a colorful gin, but, uh, it, it really, it really worked out. So the, the story's a little bit story's a little bit similar to the Hendrix story. I mean Hendrix Hendrix being better known for the bottle shape than anything else probably. For sure. And you know, um, certainly certainly we're we have a very recognizable bottle as well and, and the color right, right. is recognizable and and uh, it's also uh, a spirit that uh, when you when you make a cocktail with it, the cocktail itself is recognizable. Oh, yeah. um, you know, and so we've done. You know, it, it makes for very uh, digital, digitally shareable uh, cocktails, which uh, yeah. which I think Instagram- is has, Instagrammable. I mean, it's very yeah. very Instagrammable for sure. Yeah, yeah. We we had a, a tea company, and I can't remember what tea company it is, uh, that had these um, things like the tea bags that you put mm-hmm. into champagne and it colored the champagne all these different colors and I think one of them was that blue but I was a tea no. interesting yeah well we uh, one of our our favorite cocktails one of our signature cocktails is the the Empress 75 which is the oh, uh, essentially a, a beautiful French 75 with, with Empress gin that uh, is this nice pink uh, pink color but it's you know it's a it's a Fantastic classic cocktail that uh, you know we we like to present as a brunch cocktail. <laughs> now, now, now we've we've had people tell us about the great wine scene in Vancouver, and I think there's a big wine festival like early in the year every year that we haven't gotten to yet, but I'm sure we will. But I, yeah, I've never that, been to Vancouver. That leads me to the next question, which is, what's the craft 
no, what's the craft distillate business like in Canada? I mean, in the in the it's, U.S. It, in the U.S. it's big and uh, yeah, it, big and growing, but it, I'm not sure what's like that up there. It it is uh, it is uh, big and growing here for sure. We uh, we were actually one of the first three uh, small artisan distillers in in British Columbia, and British Columbia really re- led the way in Canada. We actually launched the first um, premium sort of craft gin in Canada, um, and that was in two thousand and eight. Um, we you know like like others, we had a little two hundred liter still that was wood fired at the time. I used to start my day chopping firewood. Uh, you know, it was, uh, it was a very different business, uh, uh, back then. And, and now there are, um, I know there's over 60, uh, distilleries in, in BC. I think there's, I think there's about 12 of them just on Vancouver Island here where, uh, where we are. So yeah, it's, it's exploded. Uh, a lot of that's happened in the last sort of five to eight years. An, um, an off the wall question, an off the wall question, Peter. Did Canada have prohibition? Uh, we had a very short prohibition. Okay, yeah. uh, it uh, it didn't work out very well for us. We <laughs> we decided decided against it. Uh, and then okay. during during the American prohibition, uh, there was a lot of people that made a lot of money up here uh, oh, yes, selling yeah, sure. selling uh, spirits to to the Americans. In fact, we 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 uh, thought of ourselves as philanthropists because you know there was all this illegal moonshine and people poisoning themselves with with poorly quali- poor quality alcohol in the US and and we were we had all those good quality spirits that we were uh that we were offering uh so yeah and actually Victoria and, and Vancouver here on uh was one of the the hubs of of uh rum running on the, on the Pacific coast. Oh, wow. now, here's a trivial pursuit question for you about Canada and booze. Guess who which well-known American politician had a bootlegger as the head of his family? Uh, I have no idea. Well, we won't we, we, we waste time. We'll do it quickly for you. It was John Fitzgerald Kennedy. And, <laughs> yeah, right. His, yeah. And his father started the family fortune bootlegging between yeah. eastern Canada and the Boston area. Yeah, that's true. Wow. I forgot about that. Yeah. Now, another reason we were attracted to your company and your product is that you had a, a, a very... A, ambitious sustainability program, especially in mm-hmm. water conservation. Tell us about that. Yeah, you know, we're we're uh surrounded by by water here and, and really uh inspired by by nature and so on, uh in in Victoria. Um yeah, you know, we like to say that Victoria is a place that's uh, where the wilds meet the well appointed. And uh but uh you know our 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 distillery is right on the water and it's actually right adjacent to uh another hotel not not the empress but uh another uh, another great hotel called the Sydney Pier Hotel um and uh when we built the distillery uh in 2000 end of 2015 beginning of 2016 um we uh we actually have uh, some con- common ownership between the the distillery and the the hotel, the, um, the Sydney Pier Hotel, and so the when the Sydney Pier Hotel was built, there was a big geothermal system put in the in the basement with a that was connected to the ocean. Um, and so when we built the distillery, 
you know, a, when you're when you're distilling products, there's you know you're you've got a boiler, you're heating, uh, you're making all this steam, you're boiling off all this alcohol, and you're using a lot of water to cool that alcohol down to condense it, and that water often goes down the drain, uh, so hot water going down the drain. But we had an opportunity uh, because of our our proximity to the hotel to actually put some some pipes. Uh, underneath the parking lot that uh, that separates the two businesses, and uh, take all of that all of that heat energy from the water uh, from the condenser uh, water, uh, put it into a closed loop, and run all that uh, energy over into the into the hotel, and uh, whereby heating the hotel rooms most of the year. Um, now, does the snow melt? So, does the snow melt on the parking lot too? <laughs> <laughs> we're we're fortunate in Victoria that we uh, don't that we, don't, much uh, we don't get much snow here. Uh, but no, the the pipes are quite insulated, so we we do actually conserve a lot of that energy. So uh, you know, a hundred percent of the energy that that's collected from the uh, uh, the condenser very near that is um, sent over to the the hotel. So you know, we uh, every every distillation we're we're saving about. Uh, 750,000 BTUs of energy and um, and about a thousand gallons of water uh, per distillation. So, um, and you know we're so so far this year we've we've uh, we've saved about um, a quarter of a billion BTUs and uh, almost 400,000 uh, gallons of water uh, so far with with this program, which has you know been Obviously, we th- we think very successful. Um, certainly, we're we're happy to to uh, to be saving that all that water and sure. and energy. Sure. Now, now we we got to f- find you through a, a firm that we know in New York called Colangelo and Partners, which deals in wine. Mm-hmm. And they were the people who sent yeah. us Empress. Do do you have an ongoing relationship with them? We do. Yeah. There there are. Our our PR uh, agency for for the U.S. really for North America. They're wonderful people. So, so that leads me to the question about distribution, especially here in the U.S. I'm sure I'm sure you're all over Canada, but what what about yes. the, what about the rest of the world? Uh, we uh, we launched Empress in Canada in 2017, um, and. Uh, that was in May of 2017. In July, uh, later that same year, we, we launched in the U.S. Um, so it's been just over two years uh, now, and we are now in uh, 26 states in the U.S. Um, uh, certainly, uh, New York is is one of uh, one of our key key uh, states. Um, uh, we're doing you know we're we're more or less across across Canada. Um, and uh, actually, in Western Canada, Empress Gin is the is now the best-selling uh, premium gin uh, in the in the western part of the country. Um, we're in the UK, in Japan, um, and uh, I bet they love um, you in Japan, don't they? They they do. You, you know, <laughs> uh, certain, certainly there is a uh, an aesthetic that uh, that yes. goes along with with Japanese cocktails, uh-huh. and uh, I think we we uh, we certainly fill a role. Um, it's, it's, uh, we, uh, 
we see some great social media out of out of Japan for sure. Yeah. What about what about Spain, Peter? We we discovered the last time we were in Spain. Yeah, they're big gin drinkers. Gin and gin and tonic is the national drink of Spain, not sherry. Absolutely, no. It's uh, it's a a huge a huge gin culture there, and certainly the Spanish style gin and tonic is something that's that's slowly coming to North America, which which uh, we right, certainly right. applaud. Um, we are, it's certainly on our list. Um, it's like the UK, uh, where we are, uh, we, we think that it is a bit of a, would be a bit of a challenge to, to launch into Spain just because there are so many gins. Um, sure, it's, sure, it's sure. a, it's a bit of an, um, an aged gin market. Uh, <laughs> yeah. like it, the, the, there, there's, there's just so many of them and, uh-huh. uh, the the fighting for 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 space on a bar is is uh, um, pretty vigorous. So uh, it's certainly on our list, but uh, there's we a lot never of, a lot of opportunities in Europe as well. We never saw any blue there. We spent a lot of time in Spain. Never saw any blue gin there. Oh well, maybe we have an opportunity there. We, we did see gin and coke, which is a, which oh, is that a, was a funny which, one. Which is a total obscenity. They, they someone oh, in a restaurant that. ordered the uh, uh, what. He ordered the gin, and they put a big bottle of Coke on the table. And a big bottle of gin. And a big bottle of gin. We never, we never figured out how they knew how much he used. <laughs> oh. Anyway, that's not a, my cup of tea, but oh. that, that's a story. Don't for, knock it till you've tried it. That's a story for another day. When when you start making rye whiskey, be sure to make sure you, we get some. <laughs> sure. Well, you know, we when we uh, when we moved into our new location and before we'd launched Empress, we didn't know what we were going to be making. Uh, although we we certainly, you know, gin was our our forte, uh, and we so we we put down a bunch of barrels of whiskey and a bunch of barrels of rum and and uh, and those are those are still sitting here aging. So there there will be a time when we'll we'll launch us some. Uh, some very small batches of uh, interesting products. Well, so. what, well, what I what I would say if I was in Britain right now is I would say bottoms up, <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and we'll we'll do that around four thirty in the afternoon right here. <laughs> Perfect <laughs> with with Empress Gin, Peter. What a wonderful story! Thank you so much for sharing it with us. Uh, very very welcome. Thank you thank you very much for your interest and. Uh, Look forward to chatting with you again soon. Sure. Bye. Well, I guess that pretty much is a wrap for today. Yeah, yeah blue, blue gin. Blue gin is lo- something. Lo- lots of bread. Living bread, yes. And 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 the eastern shore of Virginia. What a, what a medley of today's program. We hope you enjoyed it, and you'll join us again same time, same place next week. And until then, bye bye. <laughs>